0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Uh, we're talking in this in this segment about BC's pre-retirement and retirement generation and those facts, uh, those folks in debt. So again, financial challenges, everybody experiences them, doesn't matter what age uh, we're at, and Sands and Associates does this annual study looking at trends and key information, all the data about the BC residents facing financial difficulties. And you found this is one of the other groups, pre retirement, retirement generation. Who are these folks? I mean we've sort of defined them, but what Mm -hmm. kind of age group are we talking about today?
1: Yeah, so for our survey a population. We uh, defined anyone that's pre-retirement, retirement retirement, as somebody aged 55 and over. Um, And, you know, definitely um, this is a you know, a topic that's getting more and more airplay these days, you know, the idea of senior citizens in debt, you know, retiring with debt or continuing to accumulate debt in retirement. And the reason it's getting a lot more airplay is because it's a massive problem. It's bigger than it ever was before. Uh, there was a study done a couple of years ago by the Vanier Institute where they compared the bankruptcy rate for senior citizens uh, from 1980 until 2015. And it wasn't double, it wasn't triple, it wasn't five times higher, it was 19 times higher. That's a lot. It's and, a ridiculous difference.
0: And it's more than just the fact that they're the boomers, right? They're the tail end of the boomers, that huge uh, bulge of the population are now moving into retirement age or pre-retirement age, right? I mean, it's it you're looking at dollars and cents at this point.
1: Oh, yeah. It's not just that there's more people, therefore there, there's more bankruptcies. This is the incidence rate. So it's controlling for the population on a per capita basis. Seniors are more at risk of debt problems than ever before.
0: And why, it, why is that? it sounds a bit crazy.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of factors for it. You know, a a big part of it is just this mismatch of income and expenses. You know, every year, expenses go up, you know, we've got to pay for things and more every single year. And often seniors are on a fixed income. Um, So you know, their pension might be indexed slightly, but usually not the same effect as prices going up. And we've seen massive amounts of food inflation, you know, shelter Mm -hmm. cost inflation in the past few years. Sure. So you know, a piece of it is just the erosion of buying power. You know, a lot of it too, is people weren't you know, appropriately ready to retire. You know, in some Mm -hmm. cases, they had debt when they stepped into retirement. And if all you're doing is paying the minimums on those debts, you'll probably never pay that debt off. So, you know, we have folks that had a certain debt level and thought they'd clear it before they were going to retire and they weren't able to do so. And now they've got that debt problem in retirement.
0: Okay. And there's two very specific groups within that one group in terms of money that, that they are in debt with.
1: Yeah, in terms of the amount of debt. So again, the survey population is people that reached out to us for help. So people that realize they had a problem with their debt, they need to sit down, have a free consultation with a professional. And for one in 3 people that that metric of when they knew they needed help, it was between $25 and $49,000 of debt. So you can imagine that's very significant, right? Yeah. You know, Going
0: into pre-retirement with that kind of debt. Yeah. yeah but what,
1: what's even more shocking is, you know, second to that, so that was one one in three or 33%, a full 26% of respondents to the survey actually owed more than that. They owed fifty to $99,000. And we're talking, this is outside of mortgages, outside of car loans. This is consumer debt. So credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes. Yes, seniors sometimes do have student loans. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a, a massive number. Number um, this generation also had the largest proportion of people who owed hundred thousand dollars or more, which wow. again you can just imagine that's right. a, that's a pretty hard hard thing to get your head around hundred thousand dollars of debt. You know, part of it could be they've got you know more time to accumulate debt. They're obviously older than a youth generation would be, um, but also it just speaks to a lack of resources to retire the debt. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger.
0: Right. So how did how did they get into this situation?
1: Yeah. So we, we asked that question, and the the most common response it's almost the same across all the demographics as we all put it on ourselves so we say you know it was overextension of credit it was financial mismanagement that was 30 percent of of survey respondents said to us you know what i could have done a better job but i just didn't manage things the right way having done this work for a long time i'm of the view it's never just one um, cause and you know usually it's not just the individual you know yes you ran up the credit cards but did the bank have to give fifty thousand dollars of credit to somebody on a fixed income no, you didn't have to say yes either, but they didn't have to offer it. So there there can be some shared responsibility. Sure. Now the other factors are what you would tend to think. Um, so the second largest reason why people, senior citizens, or the pre-retirement generation would have difficulties is illness, illness, injury, or health related problems. So you know, obviously, common sense wise, as we age, our productive capacity decreases. We start to have more you know issues with our health, and just you know a small health issue can son- suddenly snowball if it impacts your ability to earn income and keep up on some debt payments if you're already in debt.
0: Right. And the, and the key thing, too, that you mentioned, it's not necessarily just this generation, too, that has that kind of a number of illness, injury, mm-hmm. health-related problems, because we've talked in the past about a, a young woman who was in her 30s yeah. who got into a, a debt situation because she had was dealing with cancer. So mm-hmm. it's not just this uh, generation that has that, but it's certainly a component. And what's the last one, or what's the third one that you've seen? Yeah, the,
1: the last one is all job-related. So whether it's, unemployment, you know, forced to take an early retirement, a layoff, a reduction in pay. Um, Age discrimination is alive and well. I see it every day in my office. Very qualified people who, you know, maybe they were downsized from a job, you know, three years ago that paid them very well and used all of their skills, and they're struggling to find something for half of the pay these days. And uh, what they can come down to, and I I don't disagree, is people don't necessarily want to hire somebody in that type of, in that generation. It's not fair, but it's a reality these days. Yeah,
0: and they've left their job or had to leave the job because somebody else has come in the door, the other door that they're on their way out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So how did? So, what were the things, the indicators for these folks that they knew they, they had a serious debt issue?
1: Yeah, for the most part, it was what you would have anticipated. You know, people were getting collection calls, you know, um, call in the morning, noon, and night, making a bunch of threats that can be very distressing to anybody, let alone somebody from an older generation when, you know, clearly, not that our word means nothing today, but your word really meant something, you know, for someone born, you know, 30s, 40s, or or 50s, um, you know, there's just just a different level, um, I I find anyway, of, you know, morality of, you know, the personalization of debt that I borrowed this money and I've got to pay it back no matter what it does to me. So some collection calls can just send that over the top for some individuals. Um, What was really interesting to me um, is the number one cause that caused people to reach out to us was they realized they're only making minimum payments. So that's been a message, Elaine, you and I have tried to get out, you know, for the the time we've been doing this show is if all you're doing is making your minimum payments, you are not getting ahead. You're falling further behind each
0: month. So is there a period of time, let's just focus on that for a second. Is there a period of months or a number of months that if I'm making minimum payments for two months, but then, I, then I'm back on the third month and being able to uh, make a larger payment on mm. my credit card, for example, am I still in trouble at that point? Or is there a, like is there a, you know, a fail-safe number that we should be looking at?
1: Yeah, everyone's situation is different. It's a very good question. I would say, yeah, if you have to make your minimum payments for a few months, for a temporary reason, uh, but you know you can catch things back up later, you probably don't have a problem. That's the reason why the minimum payments are set so low, is to give you that type of flexibility that if life intervenes and you need to, you know, just pay $100 instead of $500 uh, for a month sure. or two, that's fine. The problem is when it gets to you're struggling to even make that minimum payment. Sometimes okay. you're only making it because it's a cash advance on another card. That's when you get into the impossible situation because eventually you're going to run out of credit space in all of your cards. Too many minimum payments to to be made and the debts have probably multiplied at that point because every month they're just adding more interest on top of interest
0: right so i'm thinking if if you're if you've done this two months in a row you need to take some action
1: yeah i'd I'd say have a conversation right if you if you look to the forward and you can't see how it's going to change yeah speak to a trustee it's a free meeting we're not going to judge you we're just going to tell you what your options are yeah
0: good point okay great Um, what kind of things do did did this particular generation tend to use to try to get out of debt before they called you mm-hmm.
1: yeah the first thing people do when they find themselves in in a debt situation is they try to cut their expenses so you know most common ones for the senior demographic is entertainment and dining out that's the first to go you know okay. that's viewed as more of a frivolous indulgence sure. and yeah at a certain level it is but we all you know need a little bit every once in a while but definitely that's the first to go uh, clothing and and personal shopping Shopping, definitely the second to go. You know, wear old clothes or thrift store or things like that. Yeah. Um, the third one is savings and/or retirement contributions.
0: So when I'm going there to take money out of my mm-hmm. savings and use it to pay off my debts, yeah, that's that's a huge. Red flag.
1: Oh, yeah. So the, the worst case for this could be the pre-retirement generation, say someone who's 55 and maybe 10 years away from retirement, and they think they're doing everything right by cashing in their RRSPs to pay their debt because they don't know that RRSPs are protected.
0: Right. And that's the key. Your RRSPs are protected under yeah. a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy yeah. as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Even if you didn't do either of those, they're protected under federal law. If somebody sued you, they couldn't take your RRSPs.
0: See, that's really, really important for Mm -hmm. people to know. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Using assets to pay down their debt.
1: Yeah. So so quite often seniors will, you know, if they've got any real estate, they're going to go and get either a reverse mortgage or a home equity line of credit and, you know, use all of that, that equity to, to pay out the debts. And
0: we get bombarded with those mm-hmm. ads and commercials and suggestions that that's a great way to do it.
1: Yeah. And you've got to be buyer beware. In some situations, it is a great way. In some situations, I have clients that wish they had never heard the name of that of that program because it hasn't been good for them.
0: Uh, so each generation facing owns their own specific challenges, what are some of the uh, ones that the pre-retirement, retirement generation are up against at this point?
1: Well, one that I hear a lot is that, you know, retirement, it should be all about them and their needs, but quite often they're still um, supporting either adult children or grandchildren, mm-hmm. you know, the bank of grandma or grandpa, it's it's still alive and well Absolutely quite often. Absolutely it
0: is. Absolutely it is.
1: Yeah, so there can be pressure, you know, whether it's social or otherwise, you know, um, to to really make some expenditures for the family, whether it's paying for a trip or paying for education for somebody. Um, And sometimes the the senior citizen doesn't really want to let everyone know the tough situation that they're in. So they just say yes and and they do their best and they put things on credit, hoping to deal with it another day.
0: Even like special classes or courses or programs that they want their grandkids to do. I mean, I've seen and heard, uh, you know, grandparents who just spending a fortune and I'm thinking, how, how can you got, how can you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other piece of it is, of course, pensions, are Are any pensions tied to uh, the rate of inflation anymore, or are they all just stagnant and... Yeah.
1: Depending on depending on the pension. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, again, some cost of living arrangements, you know, for OAS or CPP or some okay. private pensions. So, but, you know, usually, again, it's less than what your actual inflation is. Um, you know, food inflation has been massive as have, you know, fuel and different things in the past few years, far greater than what the index has shown. So
0: it's a fixed income.
1: Yeah. It's, it's essentially, yeah. There, there's no big windfalls. There's no huge increase to to your financial resources each month and you know another thing Elaine that, that we see too in this demographic and I was quite surprised What's the idea of grey divorce so it's people divorcing you know much later in life than you might have thought you know they've raised the kids the kids are gone and kind of they look at each other and say well why are we still together yeah. here <laughs> so, I'm out of here <laughs> Yeah. so you know trying to live through a divorce at that, that stage in your life um, you know there could be some division of retirement assets there could be you know sales of various things and there could be some debts that you know one partner might be left holding the bag with
0: yeah especially you know real estate is often the the retirement Mm -hmm. investment or the thing that's going to get you through and yikes with a gray divorce that's just not going to be the case Mm -hmm. the show is called dollars and cents sands and associates experts in helping you get out of debt for more information on any of the services we've talked about go to the website sands-trustee.com for more information You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. So, this top, this uh, segment, all about financial problems and, and the issue with them, when they build up over time and which is fair, but what about the debt that hits unexpectedly? Like something mm-hmm. yeah, we're in tro, da, da 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 and then all of a sudden wham we have this huge amount. Um that we owe so we talk about debt all the time on the show and how accumulating debt can snowball over time what are some of the common scenarios Blair that you see uh that people have to deal with when they have debt all of a sudden one of those mm-hmm. instantaneous things like overnight they're in trouble
1: yeah so there's the, you know the old saying that you know the light at the end of the tunnel um, it could be a train coming towards you exactly and, and I've had clients you know exactly tell me that that metaphor that yeah it's like they got you know hit by a train they got this unexpected big in the mail, they got this unexpected assessment from CRA, something where they thought everything was fine then wow, their, their world just changes. So let's go through a couple things yeah. today, of, you know how that could happen. Let's
0: talk about the CRA yeah. tax debt because well, you know, it, it, we all have to pay taxes, right? Yeah.
1: And it's one thing to, to expect it, right? So, yeah. you know, you know, if you're self-employed and you're putting money away, um, you know you're going to have a tax bill, you sock the money away and you're, and you're going to be able to pay it. But, you know, sometimes you haven't put any money away because you thought you didn't owe the government anything. And then, my God, when you file your tax returns and when they assess it back to you, you're asked to pay a bunch of money. Um, you know, some reasons why that could happen, you know, one is you might've been working with a new accountant or even an old accountant and they just made mistakes. Sure. We're all human, and sometimes we fall prey to, you know, we trust experts so completely that we don't even, you know, validate their work. Absolutely. If an accountant's doing, you know, a couple hundred tax returns at once, you know, sometimes the wrong number can get to the
0: wrong line item, and that can cause a bit of an issue. And that's why I go to a tax accountant, because I couldn't possibly do them myself, or Mm -hmm. at least I don't think I could. So I completely rely on them. Right. Completely.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for good reason, but it's always, you know, give yourself, you know, the sanity check. Just look at the return before you send it in. Because a lot of my clients, it was such an egregious mistake that, yeah, they would have seen it if they had actually looked at the the return. Now, that's not the toughest thing to correct. Usually you file, you know, a T1 adjustment or you you speak to CRA and you can get that done. Um, But obviously that can be a shock if your accountant has made a mistake. And if you let it go too long, you know, generally after about two or three years, you know, usually three years, um, you might not be able to file an adjustment on, on that return. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you deal with things relatively quickly as, as they do come up.
0: Yeah, and CRA is not, not always known for its um, flexible thinking around things when you owe them money.
1: <laughs> yeah, their compassionate side is, is not the side they lead with, typically, no, let, let's say that. That's it is, fair. it is there. They're all human beings. But, but yeah, the compassion can sometimes be a bit of a secondary consideration. Yeah. Um, you know, a really common way that people start to owe tax money unexpectedly is they think they're doing everything right and they go and get a second job. And what they don't realize, that second job might push them into a higher tax bracket. And unless they've told that new employer to withdraw taxes at a higher tax bracket, at the end of the year when they file their taxes, they're going to owe money on those new self-employed earnings that probably they haven't socked away because they weren't anticipating that owing that money.
0: Right. Interesting. And that little note that I thought uh, thought of when I was reading about this particular topic was uh, in relation to CRA. Uh, if you're like me, and I know there's lots of folks just like me who look, have to look after other people for their taxes, mm-hmm. uh, let's say manage their parents state or something. Yeah. Um, the CRA is not very flexible when it comes to somebody who's passed and what they owe either. Just mm-hmm. in case you thought that maybe you had a bit of leeway or 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 lead time to deal with this? No, they don't. They actually start accumulating interest right then and there. Just a word to the wise.
1: Well, And there you go. Yeah. So so it's, yeah, if someone passes, their assets have to go to satisfy their tax debt first before any beneficiaries would get them. And yeah, they, as CRA has all the power here, they can charge interest right away. Uh, What's really important to know if you owe them money is anybody else, they've got to take you to court before they can touch your wages or seize your assets. CRA can bypass that entire step. They can start to seize your wages, seize your assets with really very little notice to you. They're not going to do that the day after they send you a notice that you owe money, but if you haven't dealt with it over a period of time, CRA is probably going to bring out some pretty heavy um, collection activities.
0: Well, I'm really glad I mentioned it then, because I didn't realize that uh, they can take that. They have that kind of power.
1: Oh, yeah. hundred percent.
0: Okay. So ICBC, if you're Mm -hmm. in a vehicle accident of some sort, there's an unexpected thing happening.
1: Yeah. So you never plan, obviously, to be in a motor vehicle accident. And, you know, ideally, you're fine, right? You know, you're not physically injured. um, But there can be a number of reasons why ICBC might not cover you fully or even at all for that type of an accident and that can be an incredible shock if you get a bill from ICBC I've seen some of my clients hundreds of thousands of dollars even over a million dollars you know it could be that you know you were driving while your license was suspended um, or you borrowed someone's vehicle and you weren't you know the proper driver on their insurance you know there could be a number of reasons there could be a criminal um, act being committed at that time too and a a motor vehicle accident is just a piece of it but what happens when you owe ICBC money is it's very similar to to a government debt to Canada Revenue Agency in that it doesn't go away. So you can't wait them out. There's right. not a statute of limitations. They're not going to
0: disappear. And
1: that's right. Um, but the thing for people to take away is if it's so big of a number that you can't pay it, you know, if it's something reasonable, you can work out payment terms with ICBC, that's great. But if it's such a big number that you can't pay, in almost every case, and there are always some exceptions, you know, if someone was drunk driving and killed somebody, if you can't do this. But in almost every case, you're able to file either a consumer proposal to reduce the debt down to what you can afford, you know, get your life back and do a payment plan, or if it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever, you could file a personal bankruptcy and ICBC debt is generally treated the same as other debt. So this is one where if this resonates with you, you'd want to sit down with your trustee. We've got direct relationships with ICBC before we ever file a proposal or file a bankruptcy. We confirm with them, how is ICBC going to treat this filing? Because you'd never want to file for a bankruptcy knowing that, hey, the whole reason I'm doing this is ICBC debt, but this ICBC debt is actually not going to be captured in the bankruptcy because, you know, there was criminal activity or something like that. So we get all that clarity up front, but in just about every case that I've seen, we're able to file a proposal or a bankruptcy, help the person get their license back, you know, be able to drive again and move forward.
0: And that's why it's so important uh, to come and see somebody like yourself uh, a licensed insolvency trustee to figure to find that information out Mm -hmm. that you know that the whole adage about uh, not knowing is is far worse than knowing what you need to do Mm -hmm. and this is certainly a case of that. You yeah. need to know you've got lots of options out there, and uh, and that you might not have even thought of.
1: Yeah, yeah. Take a deep breath. There's nothing that's hopeless. There's no situation I've ever seen that we can't devise a plan to help it move forward.
0: One of the one of the topics in this in this overall topic is about clawbacks. Mm-hmm. If uh, some something for some reason, whether it be a contract, they've already paid you, and now they're coming back for a myriad of different reasons yeah. to say no, you actually owe us that money now.
1: Yeah this one is sometimes some of the tougher meetings that I have because quite often it's the government that made a mistake. It's the government that paid out too much in EI Mm -hmm. or they paid out, you know, too much in OAS or in disability benefits. Uh, But the government, uh, from their point of view, they don't make mistakes. So it's the person's mistake because the person should have known that they were receiving too much benefits and they should have put that money aside until the government asked for it to be paid back. Um, You know, to the extent if it's an EI overpayment, the government says, well, that person actually committed fraud because they should have told us right away when they were working and we would have adjusted the benefits and so on and so forth. So if you're sitting there with an overpayment, um, that can be a pretty tough debt because it's the same as a CRA tax debt. They can garnish your wages, they can try to seize assets. And in some cases, it's a debt that's not always captured in a bankruptcy or in a proposal. So for an EI overpayment, for example, you know I've seen both sides of the coin come up where the government has said, okay, this person has filed for bankruptcy, we're going to allow this debt to be discharged in the bankruptcy. I've also seen them say, Well, no, this is due to fraud. They didn't tell us when they were working. We continued to pay EI. So even though the person filed a bankruptcy or a proposal, they still ended up owing the money on the other side. So it's something you definitely need to be careful about if there's a government overpayment. Put the money aside unless you're very, very sure that they are paying you the appropriate amount.
0: You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scull along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now, Mark Silverthorne, uh, ComprehensiveDebtSolutions.ca is his website. He's the founder of the organization Comprehensive Debt Solutions, former collection lawyer and collection industry insider, and now goes out of his way to help folks deal with those collection people that either are phoning you or writing you and giving you some good information. He's also the author of a book, which is terrific. It's called The Wolf at the Door, What to Do in Collection agencies come calling this segment we're talking about insolvency name search fee it's a very specific topic and uh, mark i'll just mention to you i tried to research a little bit and i had a tough time getting uh sort of to the crux of what the actual issue is around insolvency name search fee but i have a feeling it's very near and dear to your heart
2: Yes, and I actually want to congratulate Blair, because the first time this appeared in the media, I believe it was October 29th, an article in the Vancouver Sun, and there was an interview uh, in which Blair was um, interviewed, as well as Scott Hanna, the uh, CEO of the Credit Counseling Society, and uh, Blair stood up for the consumers and uh, talked about how this this, uh, proposal... To eliminate the eight dollar insolvency name search fee would be a very, a very punitive towards consumers, and uh, Scott Hanna took the opposing position.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know if he regrets that or, or not here on future on further thought. But yeah, definitely both Scott and I were on different sides on this. And just giving our listeners some background. So Mark's completely right. It was uh, late October or so. Um, and I had found out late this summer that my regulator, the superintendent of bankruptcy was thinking about making what I think is a very significant change with some unintended consequences. But they were doing it very much on the down low. You know, it wasn't a public consultation, they weren't reaching out to trustees to ask for our input. Um, you know, it seemed like there was going to be nobody knowing about this little change here. And what they're talking about doing is right now um, is if someone files for bankruptcy or makes a consumer proposal, it's a matter of public record. So if someone wants to go to the courthouse and search documents, they can do so and very few people do. But if they want to search online, right now the government has put in a small barrier. They've said we don't want people searching, you know, willy-nilly, their neighbors, their employees, everything like that. So we're going to charge you $8 every time you look up a record to see if someone's filed a bankruptcy or a proposal. You know, not 800 $100, $8, something that's still reasonable. What the government wants to do now is they want to modernize this search system and make a bunch of improvements, which, you know, probably protect personal information better. I'm all for that. But what they want to do is remove that fee down to zero, basically throwing open the floodgates that if you want to, you know, feed in a bunch of names and birth dates of, you know, of your neighbors, your employees, whoever, your favorite politician, you'll be able to find out their financial history. Um, so the substance of the article was me saying to the, to the reporter, you know, I think this is a very bad idea. I don't know who could support it. Um, And the only person they could find that could support it was the president of the Credit Counseling Society. So I think that's basically the background of the issue here. And then, Mark, I know you've started to to carry this on because you've started to see some of the unintended consequences. I know you recently made a complaint to the Federal Privacy Commissioner. I wonder if you can talk about that.
2: Well, there's about um, 125,000 people or Canadians every year who either make a consumer proposal or file for personal bankruptcy under the uh, Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And in the sort of background expl- backgrounder that, that uh, the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy put out, they said that under the proposed new system, a person could uh, search the archives for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So if you take 125,000 times 10, you could search back 10 years so that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million Canadians. Now, the thing that really concerns me is that there's about 10,000 um, Canadians with, who are sophisticated computer users, and they would, within a matter of 48 hours, be able to access every single name um, on this list. So think about it. Within 48 hours, there's 10,000 Sophisticated computer users who get identified, these 1.5 million Canadians who either did a consumer proposal or filed for personal bankruptcy in the past 10 years. And I'm concerned about what that information would be used for. You know, is it possible that employers would routinely do checks? I'll tell you, you'll never get a job at a bank if you've ever declared bankruptcy. Um, and, and, I, I certainly am concerned that employers would routinely do checks to see if, if an existing employee filed for a consumer proposal or uh, did a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often when people do a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, it's because of reasons beyond their control. It's the end of a, a domestic relationship. A family members got sick. Businesses failed. And so why are we punishing these people? Because they've experienced, um, you know, an unfortunate event in their life.
0: You guys are the, are the experts on this. I'm just a, somebody who uh, feels like I'm just listening in on a conversation. But the thing that scares me is that it's nobody's business if I have gone through either a bankruptcy or a consumer protection uh, or consumer, consumer proposal. proposal sorry mm-hmm. I, I'm a bit rattled uh, <laughs> that this that this is possible but it's nobody's business that I have done this especially if I've cleaned up my debt paid mm-hmm. what I needed to pay looked after all those things that makes me free and clear to continue on with my life I mean that's what you tell your your people who come into the door right Blair oh, that exactly, once yeah. once you're free and clear once the You've you've fulfilled all your promises and requirements for this thing that that's that. And I Mm -hmm. get to I get to move on at that point.
1: Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. You're legally discharged from the debts. They can never attach to you again. Uh, what this proposal threatens to do um, is you know, just leave that door open in the future that when you're applying for a job, when you're looking for you know, an apartment, um, that the people that are going to be doing this search, they don't have the benefit of the experience of you or myself or of Mark of understanding all of the context of why somebody might have to make a filing. They're going to rush to some snap judgments and just assume that because somebody did a proposal or a bankruptcy, they're a bad risk to, to give them you know, a rental unit or or to give them a job where it could be the complete opposite. The person that actually runs from their debts and never files anything and, you know, is being sued and having judgments placed against them and different things like that, they're not going to show up in this search. They're going to look, you know, as the more quote-unquote honorable person here where they didn't face anything head-on. The person that did a proposal or a bankruptcy actually faced it head-on.
0: It just feels... Yeah, go ahead.
2: So, Elaine, to to answer, like, to to sort of move... um, Forward with the point that you were making about privacy, that's the reason why I made a complaint against Bill James, the superintendent of bankruptcy, because I feel that this proposal is actually putting the privacy of, at least in year one, 1.5 million Canadians at risk, and then in each additional year another 125,000 Canadians, their privacy will be put at risk. And, you know, the $8 name search fee, as a practical matter, that protected, and it currently protects, the privacy of Canadians because no one's going to go out there and spend $8 times a million to find out, you know, who's done a consumer proposal. Mm -hmm. But if it's free... Then you just get a, a mailing list, and then you just start cranking it out. And we're, what we're talking about is some big company getting whatever information is required to make the search, and then just having a machine or a computer submit all the names, and then and then they get you know literally theoretically hundreds of thousands of. Responses
0: back. Yeah, no, I totally hear you. And there's so much information out there in the universe about each of us already, that this, this just feels wrong that that would be that, that now this information is, uh, is free to folks or, mm-hmm. you know, anybody can access it.
1: Yeah, we haven't even talked in the actual, you know, dollars and cents, you know, what's the magnitude of this eight dollar fee? And it's actually quite large. So I've had the superintendent of bankruptcy give me some different numbers here, but it's a low of two point four million dollars a year of revenue from these searches, a high of about four million dollars a year. So in an environment where we don't have enough resources for financial literacy, financial education, we want to take further monies out of federal coffers. That that's again another part of this mm-hmm. that I don't understand.
2: Well, and one of the other parts that I find um, crazy is recently the OSB put out a backgrounder and they said that that one of the reasons they wanted to get rid of the $8 name search fee is because they want to modernize it and um, it had something to do with the cost of the program. Now, if, if 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 the cost recovery before was $8 per name and they want to eliminate the name search fee, does that mean... They're running the program in the future at zero cost because that's that's ridiculous. They're they're bring they want to introduce a totally new computer system that must cost millions of dollars. And if they were going to do a cost recovery system, they should be charging twenty five dollars in name search, not zero. Mm-hmm. So their own logic doesn't make any sense.
1: And, and Mark, we alluded to earlier that you know not a lot of people seem to be in support of this. There's a superintendent of bankruptcy, and there's the Credit Counseling Society. Why do you think, asking you to speculate here, why do you think the Credit Counseling Society would be in favor of this?
2: Well, the Credit Counseling Society, and this is um, the Credit Counseling Society that's headquartered in British Columbia, they would be the big winners financially if this were to go through. Um, and if you If you go on the CRA website, you can actually see what their advertising budget was in 2016. I believe it was around 2.6 million dollars. Mm-hmm. And I I anticipate that if this goes through, that Scott Hanna and the people at the Credit Counseling Society are going to be running radio ads and ads on public transit that say that the only way that the only uh, debt relief option where you can protect your privacy is nonprofit credit counseling. And the thing that's crazy about this is nonprofit credit counseling is three times more expensive in terms of eliminating a dollar of debt. Mm-hmm. So nonprofit credit counseling can't compete on price. So what do you do? You you try and undermine the quality of a competing service because essentially, when a consumer owes more than ten thousand dollars, a consumer proposal offered by a trustee, And credit counseling offered by credit counseling agencies, those compete Mm head-to-head. And, I mean, to me, it's a very mean-spirited way uh, to try and uh, kidney-punch your competitor.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Hmm. Very interesting, Mark. We've been talking with Mark Silverthorne, ComprehensiveDebtSolutions.ca. That's his website. He's the founder of the company. He's a former collection lawyer and collection industry insider and uh, author of a new book, or 2010, actually, not too new. Uh, but he went over onto the other side. It's called The Wolf at the Door helping consumers figure out what to do when collection agencies come calling. It's available in bookstores across the country. Thanks for joining us, Mark. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scull and along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is David Hutniak from Landlord BC. Uh, the That's the website as well, LandlordBC.ca. Uh, David's the CEO of Landlord BC and is responsible for external and internal leadership of the organization. It's so interesting, David, I'd never heard of this organization before, so I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. Their mandate is to support a balanced and healthy rental housing market with an emphasis on private sector solutions, and boy, oh boy, is Is that ever a current topic, David? You must be running off your feet.
3: It certainly is, you know. uh, It's a housing form that we need a whole lot more of. And, um, you know, we're starting to see all levels of government recognize that, so it's a uh, an exciting time, but it's also very busy.
0: Yeah, especially lower mainland, boy, oh, boy. Rental housing is a, a very uh, um, important issue. Also for Vancouver Island, on the south end of the island, that's where I live. And it's uh, it's an issue. There vacancy and all that kind of stuff, very, very minimal. Um, one of the issues that we want to talk about, David, to start is more and more homeowners, of course, becoming landlords in order to make those costs living manageable. We want to highlight and talk about some of the key factors that should be considered considered before you jump into being becoming a landlord
3: for sure um, you know certainly in British Columbia uh, when you look at the rental housing uh, market or industry rather uh, the secondary market and those are folks who are renting out basement suites or may own condos that they're renting out etc versus uh, you know, sort of a purpose-built, which is the uh, typical, uh, you know, high-rise apartment that uh, we, uh, we, you would envision. That secondary market disproportionately represents uh, rental housing in the province. That's where the, the majority of it, of it is, and even in uh, city like Vancouver, more than a little over half of all rental housing is from that secondary market. So when you're looking at individual investors or homeowners who. Will, are looking for mortgage helpers. Um, uh, certainly, having a, a a secondary suite in their in their basement or a laneway house is uh, you know for many uh, essential, and for for others just you know a good opportunity to uh, to uh, help with their wealth creation while. Uh, actually providing a really important service, which is housing British Columbians.
0: And that seems to be the key right now, right? The folks that need the rental housing, they're either being forced out of the market because homeowners or landlords can charge so much, or there's a limited amount of it in areas where it's really needed. I think about student housing always when, when this topic comes up
3: yeah well I mean we have a, a supply uh shortage. there's no question about it and it's been persistent uh you know in Vancouver and metro and Victoria you know it's uh one percent vacancy rate or less wow uh and it has been that for a number of years uh we consider a balanced market to be more like a three or four percent vacancy rate, which is Frankly, as, a, as an industry, would love to get to that point. It would be good for renters, but it would also be good for the industry, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, what's what's happened is, you know, if you've followed any of this uh, in the media or if your listeners have, certainly, uh, you know, uh, f- well, it's almost 40 years ago, the federal government was uh, very active in providing really good tax incentives. Uh, most of that purpose-built rental that you see today, those apartments in the west end of Vancouver or uh, in around, uh, you know, James Bay, and Places like that in, in Victoria. I mean, that was that was created because there were really good tax incentives to have it built. Those totally dried up in the in the early eighties, and uh, really we saw have seen nothing uh, since. And although uh, the federal government is now getting back into uh, into the housing uh, uh, domain uh, with the national housing strategy, um, most of that funding is targeted towards social housing, which is hugely needed. And, and you know we do not begrudge them that decision. But, uh, but you know, in terms of market rental housing, uh, affordable market rental housing, you know, we're still challenged in the fact that we, we don't have that kind of uh, in, those incentives or or supports from uh, senior levels of government that, uh, frankly, are required because of high land costs, construction costs, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And David, I was really you know shocked that the one percent vacancy rate in a balanced market is around three three to four percent. You know, anecdotally, the clients I see at Sands and Associates they felt you know in the last five ish years there's been you know a tightening and increase um, in costs and a decrease in availability. Um, does that jive with what you've seen? Has it been you know one percent vacancy for quite some time, or is this more of a recent trend that things have really tightened up?
3: No, this is this has been for for a period of time. I mean, I. I, I I saw a stat, and I forgot to no, know. I apologize. It's several years since we actually saw sort of like a two two uh, percent plus vacancy rate, uh, and uh, so this is this has been going on for a period of time. And uh, you know, the, the the challenge has been that uh, we've been somewhat condo centric in terms of multi uh, unit residential construction, and uh, so so you know the, the right supply just hasn't hasn't come onto market. But, uh, you know, the secondary market, uh, as I, we talked about originally, I mean, that that is still so important here, but we've even seen some challenges there with, uh, you know, a lot of the the, the condos and then single-family homes that have been bought. Uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of uh, sort of just pure uh, investors looking to, to just sort of park their cash. They're not interested in actually uh, having those units uh, be part of a, a long-term rental pool or where we saw many of them actually using Airbnb, the, you know, the short-term rental market, which, again, was taking uh, these units out of the long-term rental pool. So we've had so many, uh, so many things going on at the same time here. You know, uh, not enough being built, not the right stuff being built, and then, like I said, some of these other influence, influences that have, uh, you know, resulted in a lot of vacant housing. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, you know, a huge challenge. Uh, certainly in the last... You know, 12, 18 months, which is not a very long time. We've seen some really major, uh, uh, major movement in terms of trying to address this issue, but we're we're not quite there yet, and it's going to take a it's going to take a handful of years at a minimum if we do everything right to get, to get this solved.
0: David, I appreciate that you have such a a, a perspective of the rental housing market. Um, I, do, I don't want this interview to end, though, without us talking about Landlord BC and what it is, what do you do, how do you help uh, landlords, and what kind of resources do you uh, provide for them?
3: Well, I appreciate that opportunity. Yes, I mean, we are, uh, you know... Uh a resource for for landlords, and we're a member-driven organization. We have around thirty-three hundred members, and we have a helpline for them, and proprietary forms, etc. And really, what we are is like an insurance policy. We help them mitigate risk. Uh, you know, to this is a business. Even if you're just renting out a basement suite, you are running a business. You need to know the legislation to to protect yourself, so that you know your rights and responsibilities. And that's what we 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 teach to our members. Uh, the other thing that we, we do, uh, again, thanks to this opportunity, is we, we created something called Landlord Registry, which we launched in, in January of this year. And this has nothing to do with membership or Landlord BC or anything. It's basically a, an online platform that any landlord can go to. They can enroll. They go through, a um, it takes them about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, to go through a, 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 a sort of an e-learning program where they're going to learn le- legislation to protect themselves They take a knowledge quiz and then they get registered in the directory, <clears throat> and it's at landlordregistry.ca. Really encourage any landlord listening here to go through that program. It costs thirty nine dollars for a three year certification. It's you know a dollar a month, uh, but it's probably the best investment you'll make to uh, to protect yourself as a landlord.
0: And we've just got about a minute, minute and a half left. David, are there other resources that you want to share that Landlord BC uh, offers its uh, members or people who haven't joined yet who who might benefit from it?
3: Well, I mean, I, I think I covered what we offer. Uh, of the two websites, landlordbc.ca or the landlordregistry.ca. But it, you know, if there are renters listening to this, uh, you should educate yourself too because that's going to enhance the landlord-tenant relationship. And, uh, you know, there's a, a couple of platforms out there that tenant advocates are providing. Uh, Track is an organization mm-hmm. that has a, a renter uh, education program. It's an online program that they can, uh, renters can enhance their knowledge. And what we know is this, the more knowledge renters have and the more knowledge landlords have about their rights and responsibilities, the better their relationship. And really that's uh, what our organization is all about. Uh, we want to provide safe, secure, sustainable rental housing, and we want to make sure landlords and tenants um, you know, work together.
0: You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for more information.